0: Welcome to the Company of Dads podcast, where we explore the sweet, silly, strange, and sublime aspects of being a lead dad in a world where men, who are the go-to parent, aren't always accepted at work among their friends and their community for what they're doing. I'm your host, Paul Sullivan. Our podcast is just one of the many things we produce each week at the Company of Dads. We have various features, including the Lead Dad of the Week. We have our community, both online and in person. We have a new resource library for all fathers called the Lead Dad Library. The one-stop shop to learn about all of this is our newsletter, The Dad. So sign up today at thecompanyofdads.com backslash the dad. Today, our guest is Catherine Goldstein, founder of The Double Shift, a community for people who care about care. She's also a care reporting fellow for the Better Life Lab at New America, specifically, she wrote a report entitled a playbook to transform how america cares the care movement's winning tactics lessons and case studies from the pandemic era and beyond and that's why we're here talking today catherine welcome to the company dad's podcast
1: thanks so much for having me
0: before we jump into the report um tell the listeners you may not know about the double shift i'm a huge fan as as you know but tell the listeners what you're building with the double shift newsletter and the community that's come together around it.
1: Yes. So, um, the double shift began in 2019 as a podcast, um, telling sort of unexpected or, um, stories people hadn't heard before really around the experience of working moms. Although I no longer use the term working moms, I say employed moms because I think every parent works. Um, And uh, it has evolved now. The podcast is not in production anymore, but has evolved into a weekly newsletter and community that really focuses on the forces that shape family life in America. And I, um, this year, have been writing about a wide range of topics. I've been thinking a lot about community building. I've been surprising myself by writing about organized religion. I've been... um, thinking a lot about what the care movement is and what it could be. Um, so very wide ranging stuff that isn't your typical tip, tips and tricks aimed at parents. Um, and we have a member community and, and monthly hangouts and, and other ways for people
0: to connect. I love it. And as you know, you know, what we're doing at the company of dads, language is very important. We talk about, but lead dads, we describe the dads as the go-to parent, whether they work full-time, part-time or devote all their time to their families in that last category. I just got off the phone um before our podcast with a fellow who just, just opted to become what he calls a stay-at-home dad. And I stopped him right there and I said, you're not a stay-at-home dad. You know, No parent stays at home. Parents may wish they would stay at home, but you're a lead dad who devotes all of his time to his children. Um, I, I'm so excited to talk about this report, but a playbook to transform how America cares. How did this project, come about? Take us back in time. I know you worked on it for quite, for for all the better part of a year, but how did it all start?
1: So um, it started with some conversations between me and Bridget Schulte, who's the director of the Better Life Lab, which is a really cool think tank um, that focuses on care and work-life justice and transforming work culture, really great topics. And together we kind of brainstormed that we wanted to explore ideas around, you know, what we what our society is taking away from the pandemic now that we are nearly four years from the start um what what we're taking away um and what lessons that uh, a larger care movement has learned from it because i think that even the idea that there's a movement of people working to transform care is sort of a new idea um and we wanted to focus on concrete tactics and real world solutions, not beautiful policy ideas that we could dream up and would be amazing and tell you all about it and how it and basically it would never happen. But what are the things that are happening in the, at the local level, at the state level and community levels in activist circles that are, are transforming our, our care world and how can we elevate those lessons and learn from them and replicate them throughout the country?
0: You know, I want to drill down and talk a bit more about the tactics uh, because I love that part of the subtitle, you know, winning tactics from the pandemic era and beyond. I'm pretty sure, you know, my one winning tactic from 2020 was learning how to mix up a really fantastic margarita at home. <laughs> and uh, I put in a lot of work, Catherine. It was <laughs> night after night. i you know, nobody likes to quit her. I've just had it. I mean, you get
1: America, definitely. I, exactly.
0: I'm going to guess that's not what you were going for. Maybe there is a little bit, you know, the, the, the perfect at home cocktail when it gets, what are some of the tactics, um, that you found that, you know, that the listeners can say, okay, I could do that. Or geez, I wish I had done that, or maybe I shouldn't do that. What are some of the, the big tactics that, that stood out for you as, as being particularly, you know, effective for, for caregivers trying to figure this stuff out?
1: Yeah, well, so, um you know, I was looking really at the systemic level not, not, and there is definitely takeaways for individual care consumers and people who give care in paid and unpaid capacities. But the tactics were kind of like, how can we think about this from a larger movement perspective? And so, you know, uh, there are eight tactics um, and, and they run the gamut of things like power building in communities and union organizing for care workers, which is not something I I knew a lot about, which is, I think, a really interesting, important part of the care movement. Um, and then things like how uh, how we use political money to influence political outcomes and how we can, what are effective messages, what, what are the language that we can learn and say to sort of advance a care narrative. And What are the images we see on TV and how is culture changing around, especially I actually have a whole section about dads. I focus, um, I write a lot about millennial dads as a harbinger of culture change. Um, And so those are all just really, um, so both what we're seeing and then also some takeaways about how people can get, um, think about these from a company perspective, a personal perspective and a community perspective.
0: You know, one of the things that stood out—I wasn't—it's was probably in the report, but I remember reading it in your newsletter—and that was the the massive imbalance in lobbying dollars. You know, if you were, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, you've got, well, you know, a hundred million dollars or whatever the number was, and if you're, you know, the top uh, caregiving lobbying organization, you you barely had a million dollars, and, and it dropped off from there. Uh, I mean, that's—it's—it's it's hard to overcome big money but what were some of the strategies that you were able to you know reveal that these these organizations were able to do to have an impact with such a comparatively uh, limited budget
1: yeah well i think we haven't seen the change we need at the federal level and part of and build back better failed um which mm-hmm. had really comprehensive social policy that would have transformed so much of how we care for people in america And part of that was because there's not a political machine behind care in the same way there has been even behind some other causes like um, the environmental movement, um, other lobbying groups. Um, And so, you know, what I found that was so encouraging really was the movement we're seeing at the state, state and local levels. There's all sorts of ballot initiatives and passing different policies at the state, uh, state levels that I think are, are. Creating momentum for these larger policies. So, um, you know, in terms of in terms of how how we should win big, large scale federal change, I think we have to be investing in that now. And it can't just be like, oh, it looks like there's a good uh, the makeup as Congress have changed, and now we're gonna get it. Like that that power has to be built over time. That lobbying money has to be built over time. Um, and I think uh, I'm, I'm hopeful and we're, I think we're going to see in the 2024 election, there will be billions and billions of dollars spent on that election. And I think more of it um, than ever before will be going to around care related lobbying and advertising and pushing care issues.
0: Yeah, we kind of pull the camera back a bit. You know, when we talk about care, I want to make sure the listeners realize care is not just child care child care is is one part of it care is uh elder care caring for a spouse um and as i look at it, I, I think about this i mean every one of us we may not all be parents you know but every one of us will be a caregiver at yep. some point so what do you think has held back caregivers from organizing the way i don't know the aarp has done with with re- retired people 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 are over uh uh, a, a certain age, what, what has held back the, the caregiving movement from having the impact that you think it w- it should have?
1: Well, it's interesting because the ARP I think, actually is aligned in many of these caregiving ideas. Um, but in terms of how I think um, parents of young children have not been well organized and have not joined um, a larger care movement, I think has a lot to do with time pressures, social expectations around the individual needs of children rather than sort of how we can devote to larger social change and community building. Um, And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that parents have in common, but we are also easily divided by race, class, geography around what is best for our kids and families. And so this has been A group that has been somewhat hard to organize politically, but it's not—it's not harder than a lot of other groups. It's not harder than domestic workers. It's not harder than farm workers. So the idea that it's too hard, I reject. Uh, But I I do think there's more interest in uh, in politically galvanizing parents. Hopefully, in my from my political perspective, around you know positive change for all children, and not you know just banning books or other things that parents seem animated about about certain parts of the country.
0: Yeah, and obviously, you know, we're focused here on on fathers, on families, and children. Uh, not that we don't care about it, old people, but you know, it's not, yeah. not really, not at, um, But I know you're still in, you know, the sort of that that pre five year old uh, stage, and I have just finally uh, passed it with my youngest, who is now six. My girls are six, eleven, and fourteen. But that you know, three month to five year period is brutal. For and expensive and all that, you know, we talk about all the wonderful things about kids, and you know, we can all agree on that. But just from a logistics point of view, from a cost point of view, and it affects everyone. I mean, 83% of married heterosexual couples in America, both people work. And so if both people are working, that means they need to find somebody to help care for their kids. Why, you know, what what have you seen um in that age bracket, particularly the the three-month to, to five-year-old, where there's there's hope. Are there certain states that are doing it well? There's certain policies that are particularly positive?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that has been really exciting is to learn about ballot initiatives. So not all states have ballot initiatives, but um, uh, many do. And when people run well-run campaigns, especially around um, children's issues for children. Um, we see really positive voters want to vote for this. Voters are willing to raise their own taxes, even in red states, for um, funding and policies that support young children. Um, there is a- an amazing um, constitutional amendment that passed in New Mexico that um, has allowed basically has written in an access to um universal childcare into their constitution. And they have a unique funding mechanism through this oil reserve fund, um, that they are funding it through, uh, Portland, um, Multnomah County, which is, uh, Portland, Oregon is part of, uh, put a, basically a millionaire's tax in, they voted for a millionaire's tax for a universal pre-K, um, program that now is collecting over $200 million a year. So, um, there are, are a lot of opportunities for that kind of funding I think those are some of the easiest ones to explain to voters and are um, people are having the most success with but there are smaller places uh, there's other voter um ballot initiatives that support funding for birth to age five and other kinds of programs that aren't just specifically you know prek et cetera so um i'm when you the thing is is that these aren't really partisan issues when you ask people you know over eighty percent of people support um you know child care support it's not really a red blue issue this is popular in red and blue states it's really the politicians that are the problem when we put it directly to voters like people are happy to vote for it and they're happy to pay for it
0: yeah there was a couple couple months ago senator kennedy from louisiana not to be confused with any of the senators from massachusetts he's about as conservative (laughs) as he can be as red as red can be and he compared these issues to uh golden retrievers and essentially he said it was an artful way of saying Everybody loves a golden retriever, which is, of course, true. Like, who doesn't love a golden retriever or a lab? And that's, you know, and he is a deeply conservative person. But he said, look, we can agree on this. Um, yeah. When you think about there, there is this consensus, as you said, 80 percent, yet um, there is something that's holding people back because 100 uh, uh, percent uh, of states have uh, children in them uh, who are under the age of five. So th- there is, you know, this is not uh, a specific issue. Are, uh, a specific issue. Are there? Any states where there are subsidies going to companies, to private companies, for them to sort of step up and, and do something or for them to offer some sort of benefits and then perhaps get a break on their corporate taxes for for their employees? Anything you've seen there?
1: Yeah. So um, there are a couple of states. I know Michigan is one. I believe they're piloting one in my home state of North Carolina called a tri-share program, which is the child care program where... Ah, uh, the government pays a third. Uh, companies pay a third, and the consumer pays a third. Hmm. And so they are—they're piloting kind of these public, some public-private partnerships. Definitely, there's experimentation around that. And I think we're in a situation with childcare where we need every experiment, we need every pilot, we need every solution. Um, I think you know the consensus among. Uh, experts is that for a real transformation of the childcare system, we need some big federal investment. This can't really be solved by the private sector or just at the state level. But certainly, there can be some really big um, positive developments can be made in those areas. So, um, yes, TriShare is definitely around, yeah. and it, it's a good it's a good model for getting for seeing if that's a problem that affects everyone, not just you know parents.
0: You know, I've been asking you questions as a leaned toward hopefully uh positive answers, but through you know all your research and writing this, what were some of the really dispiriting things that you 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 found?
1: I mean one of the things that I liked about this report was that I got to really focus on a lot of solutions and um and hopeful things in general because that doesn't isn't how our world feels most of the time and so saying, hey, you know, this is how this is why this county that went uh voted you know fifty seven percent for trump, just passed, you know, passed a children's initiative. like this is cool. This is exciting that there are places where, you know, people really care about care. um I think that the thing that is uh, is dispiriting uh, is uh, is dispiriting for me about this is probably the money and politics element that. Um, This movement is so important and impacts so many people. But part of it is that we have not it has not been politically um, resourced to make positive change. And then also, I think, you know, another another part of it, which I think is really important, is that the reason that we don't have these policies, the reason that Build Back Better failed, which would have transformed um, our care economy, Um, is basically because large companies, large and powerful companies don't want to pay more in corporate taxes. And they are very powerful. And I think we need to name that that is the reason like we can't have nice things. Um, And it's not about necessarily, and they have a huge political influence. And so it's not that people disagree about it. And, you know, I feel like we we need more things in America where people agree on and we can feel good about making people's lives better, not just preventing catastrophe. And I feel like care is just such a winning issue in that way. And it's frustrating to see. I mean, it's just the classic story of it's basically like villainous corporate behavior. So, you know, uh, I, I'm all for calling that out in 2024 and beyond.
0: You know, you talked about, you, you know, you can't come on the Company of Dads podcast and let's not talk about dads. You talked about the hopefulness among millennial fathers um yeah. come to talk, talk tell me a bit about why you're hopeful that millennial fathers might be better than uh, i don't know baby boomer dads
1: well i i um i think millennial dads are some of the most important harbingers of culture change around caregiving and valuing care that I see, and so I wrote really extensively. And maybe we can put a link to the um, a newsletter I wrote about this as well in the show notes or something. But um, basically, um, millennial dads are the most involved, and of course, there are. You know, we can add in a few people. Like you know, Paul. I know you're Gen X. We'll we'll add you in honor, as an honorary. <laughs> so my husband is Gen X also, um, but uh, basically um they millennial dads again I'm speaking in broad terms are the most involved dads in the history of, as, of modern fatherhood in terms of um their involvement the um the the way they the time they put into caregiving the nuances that they are committed to their ongoing commitment to equal partnership, which I think, you know, is an imperfect thing. I don't think that you can say you have an equal partnership and stay that way forever is an ongoing um, process. And I think that um, we need to celebrate that. It's not that everyone, you know, should get a cookie every time they change a diaper, but from a cultural-
0: well, you, You'd be quite fat and probably have type two diabetes at the end of that, because you change a lot of diapers in the course of being a dad.
1: Um, but but in terms of the systemic things, like I think we need to praise um, we need to really praise men for taking the, their fully amounted paternity leave. Um, and it, it's really important. I think men are unexpected voices in the caregiving conversation and people listen to unexpected voices in different ways. Um, you know, even, for example, um, when Mark Zuckerberg took his first paternity leave, this was international news. That a CEO of his his level, I think he took eight weeks maybe. This was like a gigantic deal. And a lot of other men, I think, felt like that helped enable them to take paternity leave in the future. And then when his third kid came around, nobody was caring how much paternity leave he took.
0: That, that's a great point about Zuckerberg. But I also think, you know, more broadly, sort of any leader it doesn't have to be the CEO, but it could be, you know, somebody, a people manager, you know, what not formally known as, as middle managers when they model it, it makes a huge difference. But when they don't, uh, it has a huge, you know, detrimental impact and the ones who may not be modeling it are, uh, Gen X or in a leadership position or, or, uh, you know, baby boomers. What do you say, you know, are, are there, was there anything from your research that showed sort of productive, optimistic ways to get those, you know, slightly older, you know, leaders to sort of not, you know, we, you hear these stories all the time about, oh, you know, when I had my kids, they were young and I missed everything. And people say it in a boastful way, not in a remorseful way. Did you see anything that showed, you know, sort of movement on that front where, you know, there could be more productive modeling um, for, for younger employees to, to take that full leave?
1: Well, one of, one of one piece of research I love is that paternity leave is contagious.
0: Yeah, so- that's a great way to put it, yeah.
1: If you know someone, a brother, a friend, a coworker who's taken it, men are much more likely to take it. So there's really a positive downstream effect when you're thinking when men are about paternity leave. It's not just about your family. It's also about your community. Um, I also think that, um, you know, studies show men who take paternity leave are more likely to have a closer relationship with their child at age six. Um, their wife is more likely to, uh, or if they have a female partner, is more likely to um, be employed and have um, a stronger career. It's likely to help um, their relationship in equal parenting. There's so many benefits beyond um, just, you know, thinking of it as a negative from work. Um, And I, you know, I honestly, I think that a new generation of dads, like, they just aren't gonna stand for the idea that they're gonna miss all these important moments. I think that we're we're normalizing that that's not normal and that there's, you know, that job isn't gonna be there for you on your deathbed. You know, I think there's a lot more questioning about what we actually get from work and trying to focus on things that really bring joy and meaning to our lives.
0: You know, in a newsletter you wrote about this, you you it had a very provocative title, which I, I, I won't remember exactly, but it was something along the lines like, "Should we continue to praise fathers for you know, or should we continue to praise men for being fathers?" And of course, the knee jerk reaction um, would be, "No, why? You know, they're they're parents as well." But you came to the conclusion that yes, we should. Praise them, and and I get you joke. You know, you you don't get a cookie every time you change a diaper. Um, that would be unhealthy. Um, but uh, you know, there is that notion of praise, and and I I can see it coming from moms, but from other dads. Unpack that. Why is it important that you know men are praised in some reasonable form for acts that you know women and mothers have historically done? Uh, out of expectation.
1: I mean, we all like praise. <laughs> We all like praise. You
0: are great, Catherine. <laughs> there you go.
1: We all like praise and parenting is hard. And instead of I, you know, the one of the conclusions I came from this to this from this newsletter was not just we should praise dads for doing the hard work of parenting, but we should praise everyone because it is hard. And um, and I think that if we want to, for example, normalize paternity leave, you know, it, it's it's amazing to me um I think most of the people in my life know you know my I do tons of work on moms and care and gender equity and you know people are still really surprised that my husband can handle all three of our children when I go out of town you know and um it is hard I'm not like I am it, I'm having a great time when I go out of town I'm not saying it's not hard <laughs> so he deserves praise because that is hard um, and not just because he's a dad doing it. And I think if we want people, if we see behavior, we like, we should celebrate it. I mean, I think the flip side of that is like, you know, you see the dad taking the baby out of the restaurant and four grandmas come up to him. and was like, you're an amazing,
0: <laughs> you didn't healthy- drop him. How did you manage not to drop your child?
1: He held this baby for 10 minutes, dad of the year. I mean, that's overboard, but you know it. It does suck when you miss your dinner is cold and you're, you know, comforting a crying baby. You know, and that's okay to acknowledge that. I, I do think some of the praise, um, especially from older generations, had to do with how terrible right, <laughs> the yeah, fathers yeah. were in previous generations. So there's the trade-off. <laughs>
0: Perfect spot to end. Uh, Catherine Goldstein, founder of The Double Shift and the author of the new report, A Playbook to Transform How America Cares. Thanks so much for coming on the Company of Dads podcast today.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Hey, and to end on a praise note, you really are great.
1: Thank you, Paul. You.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to the Company of Dads podcast. I also want to thank the people who make this podcast and everything else that we do with the Company of Dads possible. Helder Mira, who is our audio producer. Lindsay Decker, who handles all of our social media. Terry Brennan, who's helping us with the newsletter and audience acquisition. Emily Servin, who is our web maestro, and of course Evan Roosevelt, who is working side by side with me in many of the things that we do here at the Company of Dads. It's a great team um, and we're we're just trying to bring you the best in fatherhood. Remember The one-stop shop for everything is our newsletter, The Dad. Sign up at thecompanyofdads.com backslash the dad. Thank you again for listening.